This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Welcome to um, Conditions 2 and Hindrances 4, the Spirit Infilling. Thank you for being here on time. Um, uh, welcome back, those of you who were here the first uh, session, and those of, welcome those of you who are here for the first time. We're going to get into this uh, session uh, in a very practical way in terms of our lives and a lot of the experiences and references will be that way. There's a number of things that I'll share from the Spirit of Prophecy as well as the Bible about that. Um, the Ministry Magazine, for those of you who are pastors and get Ministry Magazine, published a couple of articles this summer, I think it was July and August or something like that, with these subjects, pri primarily these subjects, so you can have access to that that way. Um, a number of people have taken advantage of getting that, the book, and it's here. If you're interested in that, um, after the session today, um, let me know. We have that for sale at a price that uh, you can get it at the ABC. I just bought it myself, I mean, brought it myself from that. Um, but before we get into the subject, we hope even before we have some, we have prayer uh, for that subject. I'd like to give an opportunity for other questions and answers. If you have any, especially those of you who were here the first session, if you have any questions, or if, if any questions pop into your mind at this point, this is a good time to do that. We'll probably do another session. Um, in the break, uh, you know, as part of a break. And if there are no questions at this point, then we'll, we'll get going. And uh, you can save your questions until later. Anytime you have a question for clarification, what do you mean, what did you mean by that, or where is that found, or whatever, um, just raise your hand and get my attention to do that. So do you have any questions? Uh, the, the rule for the questions is basically this, so that everybody hears and the tape can get your question, is just come to the microphone right here and, uh, and, and uh, ask that question at that time. You don't, need to, you don't need to say who you are, what your name is. You can even fake your voice if you wanted to. <laughs> In yeah. the first session, you were talking about how... Um, that Jesus said to them, wait until they receive the Holy Spirit, not 10 days, not 3 days, not 50 days, whatever. Right. And we have all of these programs in our church that I'm just saying sometimes I feel like we try and substitute them. So how can we integrate these programs that I know some of them are very good with really getting the Holy Spirit, you know, the real live experience? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure we can do much about it except for one thing we can do. We... <clears throat> There, there is very little control we have over other people, but there is a lot of control we have over ourselves, more so than we think. And, um, and we don't need to capitulate on that. So if I have an attitude in my own life, private walk with God, that I am not going to say to God, Lord, if you don't do something for me in five days, I'm going to move on to something else. But if my attitude is, this is important to you, this is important for my life, I'm going to stay at it until something happens, then I'm already, 
I'm already practicing that in my own life. And I believe, I really firmly believe that when we have that kind of an attitude, God will surround us with other people of similar attitudes. And there, you don't have just one person, you have other people who are also of the same mind who say, we're going we're gonna to stay with this because this is important to God and we're going we're gonna to stay with it until something happens. Uh, and then that can create a little bit of a, 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 a domino effect Um, You know, sometimes great things do not happen at the time we hoped that they would happen. But that doesn't mean that great things are not happening behind behind the scenes. In other words, God is at work in a major way, except that we cannot see it at that time. But we we need to have an attitude as if God were doing those major things. And it's all right, well, later we're going to see it today. There's a number of statements how we really should pray. Um, be honest with you, if, if your prayer life is close to what mine is often, uh, it's pretty pathetic. And we don't really know how to pray yet. Uh, it's, it's not serious enough for us to get serious about it. And so we'll see some of that today. But uh, thank you for that question. I think that modeling or, or, or being sure that we are not going to give up is, is the first step to that. And I think that God works out the details after that. Any other questions? Yes, please. <clears throat> uh, my question is, um, you're talking about the conditions and hindrances for the spirit um, filling. Uh, what should the church do for leaders that are standing in the way of the Holy Spirit coming to the laity? That they're restricting the process. Okay. We had a similar question this morning. Um, briefly, uh, we, we, we need to make sure <clears throat> we don't... We need to make sure we take seriously what it means to pray for our leaders. Many times, or sometimes, we have an attitude, well, a leader is not being very open or receptive to what God's primary values might be, therefore I I dismiss him. Um, That's not God's attitude, therefore it cannot be mine, because then God can no longer use me on behalf of that person. Um, I need to ask God for a burden for those leaders. Lord, give me a burden for that person. The, the reason they're in leadership is, is, you know, I've been, and maybe I should say a word about it, I've been assuming that people know who I am, but that's not always true. I, um, I'm the director of the North American Division Evangelism Institute, so I work for the division. I, I teach full-time at, uh, at Andrews, you know, at the seminary. Um, I have a full teaching load, and we have about a 13-member staff member. This is... Natty was what Mark Finley uh, started in Chicago in 1979 as a, an evangelism training institute that moved to the seminary because now we do that training with the seminary students as well as uh, people uh, throughout the division. So I traveled quite a bit and I was ministerial secretary before that. Um, I don't know why I was saying that. There was a point to it. I'm sure there was a point to it. For me, the, the issue of leadership. Thank you. The, the, what I was going to say is that I've, I have been, I have been at 
fairly high levels of leadership engagement. And I can tell you, and, and this has changed my thinking, I can tell you that the people that are in leadership in the church, there's all kinds. There are some that are very devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Serious saints. And there are some who are not. Okay? Who are not. But there is one common denominator, and that is the great majority of them are incredibly hardworking. That's why they got there. And, uh, and most of them are terribly talented. They're, you know, many of them are very talented, actually. Otherwise, they couldn't, they couldn't do all of the things that they're doing. Now, that doesn't mean that everything they do is the right thing to do or is the timely thing to do. But what I'm saying is that God has seen fit for those people to... He has allowed for that to happen. That means that the potential is there. Therefore, we need to pray for those leaders so that God could could maximize their potential because it's there. And most leaders, many of them are ministers who have become ministers because they have really answered a call from God to serve God. Therefore, there is a real spiritual core there. Sometimes it gets lost in the busyness of life uh, or for a number of reasons that we don't need to get into at this point. But it's there, and that's what we need to pray for these people. We need to befriend them. We need to uh, advocate on their behalf as much as we can. Now, if they are clearly doing something against God's will, it'll become evident not only to you, but it'll become evident to, any other, to, to a number of other people. And God will use the body to, to bring that to, to, to a halt. Um, that doesn't mean we need to remain silent necessarily, but we need to be very careful because the Bible clearly teaches to be very careful. It says, for instance, Paul says, do not allow any accusation against an elder to be brought lightly. Well, the elders are the pastors. Biblically speaking, the pastor does not exist. The pastor is the elder. The only difference is the pastor, the pastor today in the 21st century is an elder who gets paid full time and most of the many times has had seminary training, which the elders in the first century didn't. But that's the only difference. Even in the first century, elders, some elders got paid. And according to Paul, they got paid, some of them, because they were good teachers. And that is one of the two major functions of an elder. But that's leading me to other areas. Anyway, so we, we need to really pray for them and, uh, and try to support them. And if they are really in the wrong... We can't ask for God to remove them, but let God do that then, because we need to be very careful to play the role, you know, God's role in that thing. Well, as Samuel said of Saul, heaven forbid I stop praying for you. Yeah. In other words, even, even though Saul was doing the wrong thing, Samuel, it was his duty to continue to pray for him. And that's the attitude I take and teach others to take about leadership. That's a, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, a good example. And, and Samuel clearly knew that it was not God's expressed will to have a king in Israel. And he warned him about it and everything. And it, and it affected him personally too. And God in his great kindness said to Samuel, don't take it personally. It's not against you that they're really, it's really against me that they're going for. Um, and yet Samuel understood that God was in control in spite of that. So, any other questions? Before we 
delve into the subject. We'll have another chance to, to do that again. Thank you. All right, it's time for us to sing because we need to sing, huh? Amen. We need to do that. Besides, after lunch and all that, it's it's a good thing to, 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 to do that. How many of you are acquainted with this song? All right. A few of you, some of you will probably recognize it as soon as we start singing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can give me thence depart. This is a very good Adventist song. It's not written by an Adventist, but it's, a, it's good Adventist theology when you read it carefully, all right? This, this is the reason why the old... Protestant hymns stood the time because there were good theological lessons every time. It was not just a, a ditty repeated, you know, time and time again until you fall asleep. It, they, they actually said something, and, uh, and that's why it's, it, it, you know, stood the test of time. So here's the second one. When Satan tempts me to despair And tempts me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there Who made an end to all my sin Because a sinless Savior died My soul a soul is counted free Forgot the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am. The King of glory and of grace One with himself I cannot die My soul is purchased with his blood My life is hid with Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my God with Christ my Savior and my God. I remember the first few times I came across this song. I learned this from my students a number of years ago at Southern Adventist University. I used to teach there, taught there 14 years. Um, in the first couple of times I came to this line, one with himself I cannot die. What, what a profound what a profoundly theological statement. In other words, John 10, I have come so that you may have life, and you may have it, wow, abundantly. One with himself. When we are in Christ, when Christ is in us, when we are surrendered, even if we die, we cannot die. You know? 
That's what Jesus basically said to Martha you know, in John 11. That the, I am the resurrection and the life. In, 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 so Christ in me, I cannot die. It, it is life itself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. It's a good um, sanctuary message uh, song. Um, that people that really got serious in Bible study understood it, even though they didn't have some of the benefits that um, that we have as as a people. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again we thank you for the privilege we have to be in a place like this, to associate together with friends and colleagues and brothers and sisters who are on the way. Oh, Lord, we pray, send your Spirit to us this afternoon to understand the things of God, the Word of God, the mind of God, to appropriate to ourselves the principles that we learn to say yes to you and keep saying yes to you until we cannot but say yes to you. Thank you for this privilege. I pray that everyone may hear from you this afternoon, from you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Ellen White says in the Acts of the Apostles, page 50, it is not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of His grace do not flow earthward to man. If the fulfillment of the promise, and she was speaking Methodistically, the promise is code for the outpouring of the Spirit. Methodists use that, they, they call it the blessing, the, the baptism of the Spirit of God or the infilling of the Spirit of God. If the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it is because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. Then we're going to... We're going to try to understand the difference between filling, infilling, and baptism in a minute. But all would be, if all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. You've heard me, some of you probably who have heard me or read book or whatever, heard me tell one of my favorite stories, Gahun Tse, who was a laborer in China, in the interior of China. He, had been baptized, he was baptized four years before. And he had a great burden to share his faith with other people. But he couldn't read, he couldn't write, he couldn't even remember things. You know, people read from scripture in order to memorize it. He couldn't remember. He couldn't write it, I mean read. So he couldn't read, he couldn't have Bible studies with people and so forth. He had such a burden to share God with others. And one day that burden just overflowed to the point that says, I can't stand it anymore. I must be filled with the Spirit of God in some way. I am not today in order to do the work that God wants me to do. I, cannot I can no longer function this way otherwise. So he set out one Sabbath afternoon in his little humble hut. He prayed, he knelt down and he prayed and he stayed with it until he said, God, I'm not leaving until you do something in my life. A couple hours went by and finally he hears a voice. He's by himself. He hears a voice that says, read Psalm 62. He argues with the voice and said, God, I cannot read. 
The voice comes back again, read Psalm 62. So he takes his Bible, the Bible he cannot read, but it was a Bible that was given to him when he was baptized. He takes that Bible, he finds Psalm 62, and he reads Psalm 62. He's actually reading Psalm 62. He is so overjoyed about this, he runs out of his hut and goes across town, across the village, to tell his elder, 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 God taught me to read. And then he proceeds to repeat Psalm 62nd by memory, word for word, after having read it one time. So God took care of those things real quick, didn't he? Well, this is a nifty story, but is there more to it? Absolutely there is more to it. In fact, as a result of this great burden that he had that was satisfied by a miracle of God in his life, he was then, he, 180 people, he brought 180 people to the waters of baptism that first year after this. And then he was credited with miracles of healing sometimes, you know, between three and 500 for the next few years. And this is not just a, an obscure story. This was actually shared at the General Conference session in Indianapolis a few years ago. And I talked with a person who actually knew him, the, the, the missionary who knew him. Now that is, that is wanting something that God has to offer badly enough that says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, I'm not leaving until something happens. Hmm? And something did happen, didn't it? But he was ready. I mean... This man was ready to do this. He just didn't know, he didn't have the tools to do it. God says, your heart is ready for this. Now I'm going to make it possible for you to do this. That's being filled with the Spirit of God. That is, that is having everything that God has in mind for you. Here's what Ellen White says in Fundamentals of Christian Education 537. We are not willing enough to trouble the Lord with our petitions. And to ask Him for the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Lord wants us to trouble Him. It's interesting, huh? The Lord wants us to trouble Him in this matter. He wants us to press our petitions to the throne. Become a nuisance to Him. That's what she's saying. Don't let Him go until, you know, you are smoking His nostrils. You know, that, that's the expression He uses in the, in the Old Testament. But that He uses that expression in a negative sense. This would be in a positive sense. In other words, stay with him. Trouble him until he says, Are you back here again? All right. I'll give you what you need. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus says, you know, you being bad parents, you're willing to give good things to your children. How much more is your Heavenly Father willing to give good things to, to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And if a child... As for bread, you won't give him a scorpion, will you? You know, if my kids, I have three kids. If my kids, as they, when they were little, they're not little anymore. They're all big. Uh, one is six foot, the other one is six two. And my girl, when she puts those, you know, high heels up, she, she, she likes to walk next to me. She says, Dad, you look short. <laughs> Anyway, when my kids were little, 
There's two, 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 two things, two things that your kids can ask you for. Sometimes they can ask you for things because they're self-centered about that. They want this because they want it or because, you know. Or sometimes they will ask you for something you've promised. In other words, they'll hold you to it. When they would hold me to it, I, as a, that's what makes me a father. That's what makes me want to, it says, good, because you believe that I was going to provide that for you, you remembered that, the conditions have been met, I am delighted to give you that and more, because it mattered to you to even ask. That's different. This is what God is talking about. Bother Him, press that before Him. This, this asking for the Holy Spirit is not something that we came up with. It's something He came up with. When is the Spirit given? I, I just want to give you a little bit of quick history and theology before we get into the conditions because this is something that is often misunderstood. When is the Holy Spirit given? A lot of people think that the Holy Spirit is given, that is the baptism of the Spirit, is something different than other outpourings or infilling of the Spirit, and so there's confusion about that. There's some 30 different um, verbs used in the New Testament and the Spirit of Prophecy that re- basically refer to the same thing. So let's try to understand. When the Spirit is given, it's basically divided into three theological schools. Uh, the Reform School, the Holiness School, and the Pentecostal School. Let's take that one by one. Briefly, the Reform School, that is the major Protestant bodies uh, leaning towards Calvinism, you know, the, the, the Reformed Calvinist School, says that you receive the Holy Spirit simultaneously with your salvation. In other words, you, as you surrender to Jesus Christ, you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit or you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit at that time. All right? It is an automatic element of the conversion initiation process as a term that theologians use conversion initiation process it is taught by most of the evangelical churches today and it is accepted by most Seventh-day Adventist theologians basically all I don't know of any serious Adventist theologian that really doesn't understand it this way to be honest with you and most of the leaders not every leader has had deep theological training so but most every leaders and it is the clear teaching of Paul if you only have the books of Paul in the New Testament you could not arrive at any other conclusion Paul simply assumes that when you surrender your life to Christ all of the Holy Spirit is yours boom you give yourself to Christ Christ gives himself to you completely in the Holy Spirit so that's a basic concept the second school of thought deals with subsequence, not consequence. In other words, it's not, cons- it's not at the same time, it's not simultaneous, it is sometimes after, subsequent to, alright? That is subsequent to the acceptance of salvation, 15 years later, 30 years later, as you mature, etc. That's the whole concept. It is a sanctifying, maturing feature in the process, it's called the second blessing. That was something that the post- Wesleyan Methodists came up with. They called the second blessing. The holiness movement talked about the second blessing. By the time Ellen White was around, uh, the second blessing was a, a well understood feature. She didn't use the second blessing 
terminology. She used the blessing terminology because second blessing is actually technically, theologically incorrect. It is believed by some Methodists and the, all the holiness Pentecostal movements uh, of the day, you know, Nazarenes and all of that. It is assumed as true. Remember this. It's assumed as true. It was assumed as true as by some early Seventh-day Adventist leader. They simply assumed that that was the case. Well, part of it is because half of Adventist leadership came from Methodism anyhow. And so that was the concept. Just like, like uh, many Adventist leaders did not have a, 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 a correct or complete concept of the Trinity either. Or even of the Holy Spirit. That's why even Ellen White called the Holy Spirit an it for the first 40 years of her life. Until, until that understanding became more, more clear. It is a concept drawn from the reading of Luke and in the book of Acts. So if you read the book of Acts, you may reach that conclusion. But if you read Acts plus Paul, it's more difficult to reach that conclusion. Dennis Smith, I just want to share this with you because this is, he has written a lot on the Holy Spirit, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you read his writings, you really, you, you find that conclusion. Dennis, whether knowingly or not, he believes in a second blessing theology. Um, in a subsequence, even though he does not make that point, that, that's what the writings imply. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's what happens with some people. The third school of, of thought is a Pentecostal school, which is very, very close to the previous school, except that their emphasis is not the subsequent sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The emphasis is on power. And that's why charismatics are all into power. You know? That's what it's all about. It's, it's about the, the miracles. It's about the manifestation of God. It's about, you know, it, it, it's very sensory, um, uh, you know, influenced. An empowering feature of the Christian that usually means speaking in tongues. Until you speak in tongues, you have not received the Holy Spirit. That is the, the, the mainstay of Pentecostal theology. All right? That's why people, there are some people that speak in tongues in a jiffy. You know, I mean, two weeks after they become quote unquote Christians, they start speaking in tongues. But there are people who, who wait 15 years to speak in tongues. And they despair for all of those years. Because they're not speaking in tongues, you know, and so, you know, I must not be totally, I cannot, I have not received the fullness of the Spirit of God yet, you know, until they speak in tongues. Now, in, in our good Adventist theology mindset, which is good, and I'm glad that it is, because we're pretty solid on this, we wonder how, how does that happen, that somebody ends up speaking in tongues that for 15 years couldn't or may resist it. Well, the mind is a powerful thing. And if, you're think, if you are absolutely convinced you're supposed to speak in tongues, and if speaking in tongues is something that has to do with salvation, eventually you're going to speak in tongues. Yeah. And so eventually you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to you know, something's going to happen that you're going to, but most of that is obviously not speaking in tongues at all. It's gibberish. Anyway, it is assumed by some as the laity. And, unfortunately, some pastors today, people who are reading less the Bible and reading more the stuff that comes out of various sources. And it is a concept, again, drawn from Luke and Acts. So what's the truth? 
If you've been listening carefully, you probably have figured it by now. The scriptures give us several cases. So let's go to this Bible first to, before I answer that. Several cases of when the Spirit came, but they do not present a consistent picture as to whether it's something consequential, you know, uh, at the same time of salvation or after salvation or what, what happens. Here's a few. Seven cases that are very clear cases in the Bible. The first three is post-conversion experience. A hundred, the 120 in the upper room, you know, when they received the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, were those people converted? Were they Christians before that? Yes, of course they were. They were disciples of Jesus Christ. They were the 120 that obeyed Jesus. But it happened afterwards. In, in Acts 4, the early apostles, you have a group of leaders who also have a, an experience of the, a powerful reception of the Spirit of God. And obviously, these are Christians already. Or the case of the Samaritan believers in Acts 8, when Philip evangelized in Samaria, remember, and they, the people were baptized, but they had not received the Holy Spirit until Peter and John were summoned, right? And they laid their hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals love that chapter because they say, you know, they make a lot of theology out of that chapter. Um, I don't have the time to delve with this, and it, some of that is in the book and, and in other places where I've dealt with this, but briefly, let me say this. Think about it. Why, if God wanted to give the Holy Spirit at the time of surrender, why would He delay the Holy Spirit coming to those Samaritans? Maybe it had nothing to do with the Samaritans. Maybe it had something to do with Peter and John. Why? Remember John? Uh, one of the last things in, in Jesus' ministry was John and his brother James trying to summon the fire from heaven to burn the Samaritans. Why? Because they were not being, you know, they were not following Jesus and they were shutting their doors to Jesus, right? Now that's not a very good spirit, right? They thought they were very self right they were righteous about that and says, you know, you guys, you know, Jesus, you want us to summon fire from heaven to burn him up? I mean, that's not a kind of thing. What kind of a request is that, you know? And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. In other words, the spirit you're being led by is not the holy one. It's the other one right now. And so it just may be that in a twist of irony, God kept the Samaritans waiting so that John could actually pray for the true fire of the Spirit upon the very Samaritans that a few weeks before he wanted burnt. So that may be one of the reasons why he waited. Concurrent with conversion, you have that several cases. The case of Jesus, you know, he was baptized. Of course, Jesus didn't need to repent, but he, as our example, he, he was baptized, which is a symbol of repentance and surrender. Baptized, and then on the shore, he received the Holy Spirit. Then uh, Cornelius, as soon as they surrendered their heart, they understood the cross, they, they received the Holy Spirit uh, in a very powerful way. And in the case of Paul, Paul too, when he had that encounter with Jesus three days later, he received the Holy Spirit in a very powerful way. In the case of the Ephesian believers in Acts 19, the same thing is concurrent. It is at the same time. Paul's case is unique. It's very interesting. Technically, he was first converted, you know, on the way to Damascus. Three days later, he was baptized with the Spirit. 
That's when Ananias comes and the scales fall off from his eyes. And then he was urged to be baptized by water. But it's all happening basically at the, at the same time. So when is the Spirit given? While Acts tells us stories of the Spirit's activity, it is the letters of Paul that most clearly teach us about the nature and work of the Spirit. That's, that's the fundamental flaw in Pentecostal theology. Pentecostal theology said, gives more importance to the narratives of Scripture than the actual didactic sections of Scripture. What do I mean by that? When Paul wrote his letters, he did a lot of instruction on purpose. He said, do this and do that, and this is the way God is, and this is the way God is. And this is, in other words, he, his objective was to enlighten what God was doing. Luke, on the other hand, he's telling the story as it happens. You know, certain things have happened. Of course, we can learn theologically from narratives, but it makes more sense to learn from the actual teachings that are designed to be teachings, because learning from the narratives takes a little more sophistication to learn from that, because then you, can, you have to learn principles, and you have to base that or to mirror that, I mean, to match that against the clear teaching of Scripture. And that is what we need to go. That's a basic hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics means the, 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 the process of interpreting the Bible. It, it, the first thing you do is you compare Scripture to Scripture and they, you, you accept the things that are clear, more simple, before you get into the more complicated stuff. Here's an example. Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's pretty clear, right? So there's no such a thing as saying, well, I, was, I surrendered to Jesus, I was baptized, I became a Christian, but I did not receive the Spirit at that time. It's an impossibility. You cannot be a Christian without having received the Spirit. Hmm? You can be a convicted Christian but not converted? Convinced Christian, yeah, that's true. In other words, not a true Christian yet. <laughs> Alright? It says, if Christ is in you, the Spirit is alive. If Christ is in you, the Spirit is alive. In fact, the most important chapter on the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible is not found in the book of Acts. It's found in the book of Romans. Romans 8 has 16 times mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other chapter, including any of the chapters written by Luke. Because it is telling us the work of the Holy Spirit in our process of salvation. Very clearly there. But if the Spirit of Him who dwells, verse 11 says, in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. In other words, you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. You have the Spirit, you have Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. How come then? I've walked with the Lord all these years, but it isn't until just recently that I've really wanted the Holy Spirit in ways that I never did before. That's not because you weren't a Christian and now you're becoming a Christian. That has to do with other factors that we'll deal with in a couple of minutes. Paul leaves no doubt as to when the Spirit comes. He says, whenever you accept Christ, basically, he says, whenever you accept Christ in your life is when you receive the Holy Spirit. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't even care. In Acts 2, verse 38, you have the teaching clearly there. Repent, let each of you be baptized, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What baptism is that? The Bible calls that the baptism of repentance or the baptism of water, right? Let each of you be baptized. Repent, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's part of the package. You repent, you're baptized, you also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why, when I understood that when I was a pastor a number of years ago, then um, I thought it would be helpful when I baptize people to have a special prayer for the endowment or the anointing of the Holy Spirit because that is the teaching of Scripture. It's, a lot of it has to do with nomenclature. First, we are baptized. Baptism uh, is in the realm of initiation. That's what baptism means, immersion. You know, it's a Greek word that has been Englishized. Uh, it's immersion, right? When you, that, that's the initiation, that's the symbol of your walk with God. When you surrender, you die to self, and you let Christ come into your life, and that's how you resurrect. You come out of the water, you resurrect in Christ, right? As it, uh, theologically speaking. First, we're baptized when we first believe. Then we are filled time and time again. And that is the difference. The infilling is what we need to experience time and time again. On a daily basis. Now, Ellen White many times uses the word baptism and infilling indistinctively. In the same way. Ellen White did not differentiate the terms using baptism when a clear term may be infilling. And that is why some people have been confused about that. It says, well, I must... I must need to be baptized in the Spirit of God. No. What you and I need, if we have been walking, if we have surrendered to Jesus at any time in our lives, in the past, what we need is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Just like foot washing is a reminder of, of our baptism, right? The infilling of the Spirit on a day-to-day -day basis is a reminder that this is something that, that we have been baptized by the Spirit of God as we have surrendered our lives to Him. And what happens is, the more you know Jesus, the more you may want Jesus, the more you want the Holy Spirit. And that's why many times that happens 15 or, 10 or, or 30 years later, you really get serious about your walk with God. And that's not because you were a pagan before, it's just that you're growing deeper in your walk with Him. Um, so, Back to the first question, pre or post-conversion, when is that baptism or that infilling? Simultaneous water and spirit baptism is the plan of God. That is what it's designed to do. Those willing to receive the preached Christ would also receive the promised spirit. But it just might be that I may have been baptized when I was 11 and really you know, walked only at a distance with Jesus for many years. And at the age of 38, I decide to really get serious about that. And it just may be, it's hard for me to determine that. Heaven can determine that. But, uh, but it just may be that I'm, I'm then, at, at 38, deciding to become a Christian, a real Christian. You know, and really get serious about following the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, anyway, baptism of the Spirit is something that takes place as you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about conditions for the reception. 
And I want to share with you eight conditions, seven of which are something that can take place at an individual level as well as, in some cases, collective level. The eighth one is exclusively on a collective, on a group basis. And uh, we'll deal with that last. So, fairly quickly, repentance is the first condition that I've been able to see from Scripture. Uh, Acts 2, 37, 38 again. Um, you, you know, I read it before. Repent and let each of you be baptized um, in the, you know, for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of, your Holy, of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is this. What repentance is Peter talking about? What repentance is Peter talking about? It is not the kind of repentance that when you were eight years old and your mother's you know, knelt next to you at, at your bed at night when you went to bed and you said, uh, Jesus, forgive me for all my sins. And, and, you, and, and you never took one thought about what those sins might be or what it is that you did. You know, you sort of blanket, you know, blanket check, you know, I just got to get covered, you know, on this. That's, that's, not, that's not the repentance we're talking about because what is the context of Peter's statement there? Is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews who had come from the diaspora, even from the diaspora, Jews who did not live in Jerusalem. And he said, tells them, of course the people who lived in Jerusalem also were present, he tells even the other ones, you killed the Son of God. He doesn't say that to Pilate, he doesn't say that to, to the Jewish leaders, he says to that to the, the Jewish population. Why does he say that? You need to repent from that, he says. Why does he say that? Well, because in fact, they really did. By not accepting Jesus as their Messiah, they left him out to, you know, to hang, if you will. That is the kind of repentance we're talking about. In my, I, uh, in th this might be a new thought to somebody, but, but what we're talking about is a repentance that goes deep, it's deeply personal about my role killing my Savior. Have you ever come to grips with that? It may be that many Christians for most of their lives never really understood that. And they really never grappled with the issue of he died for me. I actually put him there on that cross. It was my sins that put him there. Charles Wesley understood that. That's why he wrote about it in his hymns that way. Uh, let me give you all an experience. And I, I, I fully understand this is a very personal experience. But when I was at Southern one time, the school of religion was at Miller Hall at that time. Uh, I went to do some study early, early in the morning, about five, I went to my office. And I just came across, to be honest with you, I was not looking for this, I came across a Desire of Ages 753, 754, where Ellen White talks about, so beautifully, about what Jesus did for us. How? It is for thee, she says, it is for thee he gave up this, it is for thee he went through this. It is for thee all this. You know, she repeats that time and again. I had read that many times before. I had read the Zarvages a number of times before. I heard it before. 
But that morning, for some reason, it really clicked. It really clicked. I did not expect it. I was not looking for it. I was not studying that. But it took me. It's like from the blind side, something comes at you and hits you. And all of a sudden, I understood. I was in my early 40s, late 30s. All of a sudden, I saw as vividly as I have ever seen anything in my life how my God had died for me because I, I, I caused his death. I caused his death. Oh boy. Uh, it, it, it became overwhelming. I just began to cry and sob and I fell on the floor and I just cried and I kept saying, Why God, why do you love me so much? Who am I? Who am I that you would love me that much that God himself would, would be willing to be oblivious from eternal, eternity to save me? Who am I that you would care that much for me? I was... I was sincerely overwhelmed by the love of God. I was overwhelmed to the point that after about a half hour of this, I mean, I had these visions, if you will, these thoughts, these concepts, I mean, the clarity of the love of God became so overwhelming that I asked Him. I didn't even open my mouth because I was afraid I would actually see God. The presence of God was so tangible and so I was afraid to open my eyes I might see him and I didn't even speak because I, it seemed to me that it would be blasphemous for me to even mix my voice with the presence of God to the point that I thought it I knew he would read it I said God hold back your love you know, what you're showing me about your love because I'm going to explode. I thought I couldn't take it anymore. I, 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 cannot, I cannot take that. I cannot, I cannot take that much love. That was some deep repentance that day. I'll be honest with you. I mean... I've been raised in Seventh-day Adventists in good homes. been to Adventist schools all my life. I've been a worker all my life. But I had never fully, fully, existentially understood what it was like to repent from all that I did to him. I did that to him. I mean, repentance is, is, is such a puny thing. There is absolutely no comparison. You, there's no way to override. My repentance cannot possibly override his sacrifice for me. Cannot possibly pay for it. Cannot even begin. But that is the kind of repentance Peter has in mind when he says, Repent and let each of you be baptized. In other words, it's a deeper... Remember we were talking about it this morning. Is the issue of Calvary. Calvary, 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 that depth of Calvary is what will lead us to understand the need for the Holy Spirit and open and enlarge our hearts for the Holy Spirit. 
It is all tied to Calvary. Calvary is the engine that drives the whole thing. So repentance, the first condition. Implicit, tr- implicit trust, the second condition. Galatians 3, Paul talks about it. And he chastises the, the Galatians by, well, let me read it. I guess I don't have the text on these. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, He says in verse uh, 2, he says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive? Remember the Galatians were going back to being uh, um, legalistic. This I only want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the implication? The implication is that they received the Spirit by faith. Verse 14 expands on that, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the promise of the Spirit is received through faith. That is where um, charismatic theology fails, because charismatic theology says you, you, you really know that you have received the Holy Spirit if there is some outside physical manifestation. But Paul says... No, you receive this by faith. You may have not seen the fireworks. You may not felt anything. But you have believed what God has said on the matter. So it's implicit trust. That is one of the conditions. Here's a, one, of the, one of my favorite statements uh, from the writings of Ellen White that really, in a concise way, says so much. And this is in the context of the reception of the Holy Spirit. All right, She says, Feeling is not faith. Faith is ours to exercise by joyful feeling and the blessing, the blessing, the reception of the of Holy Spirit, are God's to give. True faith lays hold of and claims the promised blessing before it is realized and felt. Here is faith, naked faith, to believe that we receive the blessing even before we realize it. Now that is, that is something. In other words, I feel sinful, I feel self-serve, you know, self-selfish, and yet I am presented with the opportunity to believe, to accept by faith that God has given me His Holy Spirit. When the promised blessing is realized and enjoyed, faith is swallowed up. In other words, faith is no longer needed to be exercised; it's eaten up. But many suppose that they have much faith when sharing largely the Holy Spirit, and that they cannot have faith unless they feel the power of the Spirit. That's Pentecostal theology. Such confound faith with a blessing that comes through faith. The very time to exercise faith is when we feel destitute of the Spirit. Early Writings, page 72. A few of the Christian saints outside of Ellen White and the Adventist Church have understood this. But many people don't understand that. Number three, condition. The third condition is obedience. And you know that text in Acts 5.32. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. Plain and simple. Now, in the Bible, obedience and faith are the same basic idea. It's it's, It's two sides of the same coin. If you really obey 
with all your heart, it's because you're trusting God. And if you really trust God, you're going to end up obeying Him. You don't hold back. It is the same concept. The devil has been masterful in making millions of Christians believe that obedience and faith are two different concepts. But it's really the same basic idea. It's part of the same package. All right? Part of the same package. The fourth condition is a burden to share. A burden to share. In Luke 11, you know this story, right? When uh, the disciples found Jesus praying and they said, teach us to pray. Of course, they knew how to pray. But when they heard Jesus pray, they saw Jesus pray, they recognized their prayer lives was puny next to that. And so they said, teach us to pray. So he repeats the Lord's Prayer, which is first found in Matthew 6. He skips four lines. When you compare that to Matthew 6, this is in Luke 11. And that is, I believe, because... He wants to get to the illustration. Jesus is big on illustrations. He's big into the story. I want to tell you how this works. So in verse 5, he tells us how it works. He says, there was a man who came to his friend at midnight, but he had nothing to set before him. In oriental lands, you, you've, got to have, you've got to feed people. You, know, you can't go to sleep without feeding somebody. You, you, you can't live with yourself if you do that. You know, it's, it's an impossibility. You, you, you knock yourself out to feed your guest. He didn't have anything. So what does he do? You know the story. He goes to his neighbor. It's midnight. He pounds on the door. Give me three loaves of bread because I have somebody who came to visit me. I got to, you know, give him something. And the other guy says, are you kidding me? You know, it's midnight. Tomorrow, I'll give you all you want tomorrow. And the Bible says, Jesus said in verse 9, because of his gall, that's what it is in Greek, because of his gall, his persistence is, is, a, is a mild word. It's gall, importunity in, in the King James. In, in other words, it's like, I ain't leaving. You know? That is what Jesus is describing with this guy. He says, because of his, you know, he will give him everything he wants. In other words, because he's not going away, he says, okay, you can have it. Please leave now. Huh? There's two lessons we can learn from that. One is the burden to share. You see, when the people of the land in the Bible times, they lived in very humble dwellings. Each dwelling would be about twice as big as this thing. Maybe, maybe, as this platform. Uh, two, two levels. The second level would be maybe uh, a, a foot or almost a foot uh, above the other one, you know, um, a little higher. Uh, and the lower level, at night, the small animals would sleep, like chickens and things like that. They would sleep there. And, uh, and the upper level, the family, the human beings would sleep there. The homes were built with one entrance and they were built with one little window that had to be small enough so that air could come through but not large enough so that people could come through, robbers, people that could hurt you, or predatory animals that can come through. So when you closed the door, it was a big deal. You barred the entrance, you know, and you got to tell those kids, it was, it was the time, you said, everybody's gone to the bathroom? Yeah, okay, daddy is closing the door. And like, you know, whatever it is, if, if you, you know, Got to wait till tomorrow now, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a big deal to open the door. That's why 
The man says, hey, come back in the morning. I'll give you everything you want. I've already closed the door. And what happens is this guy's pounding on the door. The chickens are waking up. You know, the kids are crying. It's like, it's a mess. But Jesus makes it clear that he's not going to go away. Why? Because his burden is not for himself. His burden is for his friend. I cannot live with myself unless I give this friend of mine. He came to my house. I'm honored. I used to work with a person from the Middle East, Dr. Saman, many of you know. And um, every time I went to Philip's home or anything like it was, he, it, it was, he made me feel like it was a great honor to bother him. That's so anti-American. You know? I mean... We don't, we don't want to bother people. And in part, secretly, because we don't want them to bother us next. You know? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the way it works. But, but the Middle Eastern people, they feel offended if you, if, you don't, if, they don't, if you don't come to them. Because that means that friendship has broken down. That means that you don't think of them as important to be depended on, to count on. And, and so, this man, even though he's a Middle Eastern, he says, you know, it, I would love to give you all of this, and it makes a lot of sense, but the truth of the matter is that the situation here at home is so difficult, please come tomorrow. And Jesus says, even though he's his friend, I mean, he, even though he wouldn't, have, because of his persistence, he is going to do that. Evan Roberts, uh, you were introduced to him this morning, member of the Catalyst to the Welsh Revival. He said about this incident, I was filled with compassion for those who must bend at the judgment. Remember the Welsh Revival clarion call was, God bend us, bend the church and save the world. I was filled with compassion for those who must bend the judgment and I wept. The salvation of the human soul was solemnly impressed upon me. I felt ablaze with the desire to go through the length and breadth of Wales. This is a 26-year-old. To tell of the Savior. And had it been possible, I was willing to pay God for doing so. That's a burden to share, isn't it? I mean, I've heard a lot of pastors who who are interested in getting paid for doing so, this guy wants to pay God for doing so. Think about it. In other words, God, it's a privilege. I mean, if you can just give me half a chance to do this, that is a burden to share. That is evidence that the Holy Spirit is really working in your heart and that you're going to get more of the Holy Spirit because your burden is to share that with other people. The Holy Spirit will come, Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 6, page 90. The Holy Spirit will come to all who are begging for the bread of life to give to their neighbors. Are you begging God to fill you with the Spirit of God so that you can share, you can witness, you can be more effective with that neighbor or friend or even family member? That's what we're talking about here. A burden to share. The second lesson we learn from that story in Luke 11 is persistent intercession. And that's the other principle or condition. Persistent intercession. In other words, not to go away. 
the, the whole thing about, and I made that point this morning, right? Um, Jesus never said, tarry in Jerusalem ten days and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. He says, tarry in Jerusalem until... Huh? So, the issue is, are we going to stay at it until we see evidence that God is answering our prayer, that something is happening? That is that persistent intercession, that goal that Jesus uh, talked about in Luke 11. Corrie Boom, you know her from you know, the work that, you know, her experience in World War II and all of that. She, after that, she became involved with a number of ministries in Europe and uh, among them was smuggling Bibles uh, with Brother Andrew, another Dutchman, uh, you know, behind the Iron Curtain when communism was still around. And every once in a while they find some severe, severe blockages, problems that took a miracle. I mean, nothing less than a miracle to resolve. They would get together as leaders and they would pray earnestly before God and they would plead before God to, to do His work, to, to do something about that. And eyewitnesses say, in fact, Brother Andrew wrote about this, says this is how she would pray, Lord, that's Dutch, Lord, her accent, you must do something. There's no time to waste. She would quote God's own word to him. She would find the Bible and quote it back to God. That's, that's what she did in her prayer. And then like a lawyer, she'd find the exact passage to prove her point. And then with her Bible up in the air, she would say, Here, Lord, read it yourself. <laughs> that's good. That's not sacrilegious. That is not, you know, being disrespectful of God. God pleases the heart of God because it's like, You're taking me seriously, aren't you? Yes, that's the whole point. God, I am taking this seriously and I expect you to deliver. Martin Lloyd Jones has written about this. You will find this same holy boldness among people whom God has used in revival. This putting the case to God, pleading His own promises. Oh, that is the whole secret of prayer sometimes. Think, do not leave Him alone. Pester Him, as it were, with His own promises. Tell him what he has said he is going to do. Quote the scriptures to him. It pleases him. God is our Father and he loves us. And he likes to hear us pleading his own promises, quoting his own words to him and saying, in light of this, can you refrain? The sixth condition. So are you evaluating your own life based on this? Where are you on this? Where are you at on this, you know? Have you been praying this way? Have you been interceding, you know, being persistent about that? Have you been obedient in everything that you know the Lord expects of you, etc.? Have you trusted God, you know, and so forth? All of these things are conditions that will lead, open the way for more and more of the Holy Spirit in your life. The sixth condition that I, for many years, did not include, but I included that. I, I put that in the book. Because I see that so, I see that quite clearly in the Bible. And I said, wow, but this is stepping on some people's toes because it, it can be easily misunderstood. But I believe that's, what, that's a clear condition. And that is to honor the body temple. Um, now, that doesn't mean, you know, some of us are heavier than others. Some of us have healthy conditions, I mean, unhealthy conditions or we have physical weaknesses, etc., etc. All of that 
is taken into, into you know, we cannot compare one another with each other. We've got to be fairly clear about that. But we need to be clear also about where we stand with God on that. Am I really treating this body temple as a temple or as my plaything? As the way I just want to? Or do, do I even care for that? Does it matter? The Epicureans were these philosophers in Greek that had the concept that, that um, the greatest good it was the prudent pursuit of pleasure in the absence of pain. Now that was fine. That, that was pretty reasonable, sen- sensible thinking. But that sometimes led to the extreme which the hedonists used to do and, they, and that means that the pursuit of the highest pleasure for the body is the highest good. That's why the hedonists did all kinds of sexual things that, because the whole objective was to please the body. In fact, after 1844, that surfaced among the Adventists. And there was a group of people, and Ellen White at the young age of 17 had to chastise some people like that, who believed that Jesus had come spiritually, therefore the body didn't matter, you can do whatever you want with the body. Because what mattered, that's, that's going back to Gnostic thinking, you know, for those of you who have done some study in New Testament, that's, that's, that's New Age stuff. Hmm? The teaching of the New Testament, however, tells us otherwise. We're told that the second, you know, we're told in the first angel's message that we need to fear God and give glory to Him, right? That's part of it, what it means to be a last day believer. To give glory to God. And, and that's defined in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Giving glory to God is in whatever you do, such as whatever you drink or whatever you eat, give glory to God. Well, some people are not giving a lot of glory to God when it comes to that. And sometimes I don't. I may not look like, you know, uh, 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 very obvious, but sometimes I'm aware of the fact that what I do is not giving glory to God. In fact, there was something I thought I'd, I'd read to you about this. Let me see if I can find that. Okay, I think it was on something else, so the moment has passed. Yeah, and anyway, don't worry about it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, you know this, sta- this statement about that we, our bodies are not our own. They belong to Jesus. They have been purchased with his blood, right? Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a clear teaching. And in Jude 19, something that is often missed by people, the Bible says that those devoid of the Spirit follow after their ungodly lust. So there's a connection. There's a, 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 a relationship between uh, not paying attention to your physical body and honoring or glorifying God in that process in the lack of the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
Here's what Ellen White says, the Holy Spirit will renew every organ of the body that God's servants may work acceptably and successfully. Vitality increases under the influence of the Spirit's action. Have you noticed people, and I could mention a few names, you know, we all have our genetic predisposition, right? And, and we understand all of that. But have you noticed that people, there are some people who really love God with all their hearts and they they seem to have this boundless energy reservoir. Huh? Well, in part, is because they are careful about that aspect of their lives. And because they're careful about the aspect of their life, the Spirit of God is more clearly at work in their lives. They don't wilt as quickly. They don't, they don't get as, you know, sick easily, etc. Again, there are many factors here, and I'm not trying to assume that everybody needs to be this way or that way. You know who you are, you know what your challenges are, you know what your weaknesses are and what you can do. And that's the, that's the important thing for each of us to honor God in our body temple. The seventh condition is for Christ to abide, and 1 John 3.24 alludes to that, that is for Christ to abide in my life. If I, don't, if I don't care, if this is not a preeminent interest in my life, why would I have the Holy Spirit? It is the Holy Spirit who brings Christ into my life. Therefore, if I'm not interested in, the Holy, in, in Christ to be in my life, for Jesus to live through me, you know, Romans 5.10, um, that it, it is through the death of Christ that we are reconciled to God, much more, having been reconciled, we have life, we, have, we, have, uh, we are saved by His life. So it is not just the death of Jesus that saves us, it is the life of Jesus in me that is in the process of salvation, right? And that is brought on by the Spirit of God. So it is for Christ to abide in me. I'll just tell you a quick story. A number of years ago when I was a pastor in California, there was a lady, I'm going to call her Frances, not her true name, but uh, who came to us all of a sudden, just out of the blue, kind of a Melchizedek case. No family association. It's like where she, nobody knew where she was from. Uh, but she was terribly. She was a mess. She was a mess. She not only was an alcoholic, she smoked like a chimney, she soared like a sailor, she had lesbian um, practices, she, she was demon-possessed. She was in her 40s, but she looked like she was at least 20 years older, etc., etc., etc. She hadn't seen her son in years, and now at that time would have been 17 years. I mean, her whole life was a and of course, when you have really, really messy people, uh, most people don't want to associate with them. You know, they, it's like, whoa, get me out of here, you know. I don't know how to deal with this. This is a little heavy. And uh, so I was the unsuspecting, uh, you know, victim. And I was like, oh, pastor, you'll take care of that. <laughs> and uh, actually, I made friends with her, if you can think of it that way. I listened to her a lot. She would just go on and on. 
Her heart was so heavy about so many things. She was so polluted in so many ways that I kept. I would listen to her and I say, God, how can you? How can you reach somebody like this? How can you? Can you turn this around? I was just too innocent, you know. I, you know, it's like this is really messed up. And um, one day. Uh, my secretary called me and said, uh, Francis wants you to come and visit in her home. You know, I've been praying for her, for God to do something in her life, really. And I developed more and more of a burden for her. Well, I asked uh, somebody to visit with me because I knew better than to visit that lady by myself in her home. But nobody had the time. Mirac- you know, amazingly, nobody could find the time. As soon as they found out who it is we were going to visit. You know. So I finally went by myself. And I went by myself and it was a dark place. A really dark room. There, was a, there were two candles. One out there in that corner. One at this entrance. You could hardly see a thing. She was somewhere in the shadows there. And every once in a while I could see that. And that's because they... they puff, you know, the, the cigarette would light up when she would draw from it. That's it. And she just kind of didn't say much and I didn't say much and I just kept praying. I was a young pastor. I kept praying. Lord, you know, we're in a mess. You know, I feel like I'm in the devil's den right now. He's going to eat us all up. Well, sure enough, after a while, a voice came out of her that was not hers. And a voice would say that, you know, that he loved her, not God. He loved her. And uh, Now, I had had some experiences with demon possession before, and I had learned that you cannot come in your white horse and be heroic about that and cast a few incantations and say, you know, everything's going to take care of itself. Because then you fall into the same trap as in Mark chapter 6 when the nine disciples try to cast out the demons and they failed miserably. You need to treat that very carefully. And you don't want to engage in a conversation with any demon voice. You don't want to ask questions. You don't want to... That is not what the gospel... Jesus cast them out with a word. And that was Jesus. So, keep it as detached as you can possibly can. The devil is a very powerful and very frightening. Another time, at another time, in another place, for instance, I was dealing... A couple of us were dealing with a person. There were 15 people in one room praying for this person who was so clearly, I mean, hollering, yelling, I mean, it's just shrieking. And at one point, she took a big, heavy uh, desk, classroom desk, you know, a, a teacher's desk, big, heavy, over her head. This is a woman that is considerably smaller than I am, over her head, and threw it at me. It, it can be a very frightening and very real thing. Um, so when that voice was out there, I said, wow. So I opened my Bible, and I know that that's, the devils don't like that either, but they respect it. 
And so I just read a few things from Scripture, claiming the promises of God and the love of God. The voice quieted down. But there was no, no, no other thing, you know, no, no, no cussing, no throwing stuff, no anything else. It sort of died out there. And then I said, um, I'm going to have prayer. I, I, I was afraid to ask her, can I have prayer? So I said, I'm going to have prayer. And I just have prayer for Francis. And that was it. It was a very strange meeting. And as I left, as I left, I thought to myself, God, this is a woman who is in the claws of Satan. This is a woman who, who, who yearns to be free, but is so destitute. Oh God, what will it take for her to be free? And as soon as I sat in, in my car, I just, the thought came to me, I want to give my life for her. And I said, God, you have, you know, it was my early 30s at that time, and I said, God, you've allowed me 30, whatever it was, years to walk with you. You have been gracious to me. You don't owe me a thing. I have, I have benefited from your presence all of these years. I have been privileged beyond computing. This woman, on the other hand, doesn't know you, cannot even comprehend you, cannot perceive... You know, it, I, I didn't think that she could perceive anything. I'd be willing to trade my life for her so that she can know you, she can understand you, she can perceive you. She can, she can see the depth and breadth of the love of God. Now, I have to admit, I mean, freely acknowledge to you, that's not me. I don't go, I don't wake up in the morning saying, who could I give my life for? There was only one case like that when one of our sons was in danger of death when he was real little. In that I played, but that makes even more sense. That's one of my sons. This is a woman who is a wreck. My point with the story is to tell you that that is what the Spirit of God can do in a person's life. That Christ within is able to do things that normally you just would not do. You just would not would not do. Love the unlovely, yield for the sake of somebody else, sacrifice to the nth degree, that is Christ within you. That is God at work. And when those things happen, you recognize it as such because you say, you know, I don't have, there's nothing really in me that would want to give my life for somebody like this. I barely, you know, would want to, it's like Jesus says, you know, if, Somebody gives his life for his friend. That's pretty heroic. But giving your life for your enemy, that, that takes the love of God to do. But that is the desire for Christ to abide in your life. That's a desire. You know, in, in Christ's Object Lessons 
4. I don't have that here. It talks about that. Ellen White says that we cannot love others by trying to love others. And she underlines that, by trying to love others. We can only have the love of Christ in us. In that, When that happens, then God is actually the one loving through you on behalf of others. So, for Christ to abide is one of the conditions for the reception, based on 1 John 3.24. Um, united priority, oh, I, I skipped one here. Actually, this would be number eight, united priority. And this is the one that is a corporate experience. In other words, all of the other ones are individual walk with God. But this one is, united priority is a corporate experience. Okay. Yes, yes, I, I should have put... Right, right, I missed that. that. So number six is about honoring the body. Number seven is for Christ to abide. And number eight is united priority. Here it is. Oh, okay. I just didn't um, get rid of the previous one, which I should have. Remember what we talked about this morning? We, we, we quoted from uh, first uh, Selected Messages 121, a revival of true godliness is the greatest and most urgent, most, the word most is behind the, the, the slide there, I mean the picture, and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work, remember? And our Heavenly Father is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him that our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work... By confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer. Confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer. The word humiliation, we explain that today. In today's uh, lingo, we would say surrender. We tend to use the word humiliation in negative sense now, not in the positive sense that she used it in the 19th century. So confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer. The whole concept here is this is a together work. This is something that takes place Together in a body, in a group, in a small group, in a church, or with friends, or brothers and sisters. This is a body experience. That united, we talked about Calvary and we talked about community this morning. And how that is what happened. This is what led to the early believers, that led the early believers to Pentecost. A focus on Jesus Christ. And because they focused on Jesus Christ, they came closer and closer together. They started loving each other. They started caring for each other. In normal groups who would be desperate, like the women in religion, that doesn't happen. Or the disciples of Jesus who, who were jockeying for position before. And, or the brothers of Christ who did not accept Jesus to begin with. All of these groups were now together. In community. Praying together. Focusing on Jesus. They were not praying for the Holy Spirit. They were, as such, they were, they were focusing on Jesus. Tomorrow we'll talk about that in more detail. They were focusing on Jesus. Now listen to this statement, which is a statement that I have found most Seventh-day Adventists have never come across. The promise, that's the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is made on condition. That the united prayers of the church are offered. And in answer to these prayers, there may be expected a power greater than that 
which comes in answer to private prayer. The power given will be proportionate to the unity of the members and their love for God and for one another. This is a letter written in 1903 that you can find in Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, page 303. So, when we pray together, she says, you can expect a greater power than that which comes in answer to private prayer. It is not the same whether we pray together or we pray separately. It is not the same. And that is a very difficult thing for us to understand as Americans. Americans they are the consummate individualists. We do things for ourselves. That's why we lead in technology, because in our psyche, the more we have, you know, the more of this stuff we have, the more we can take care of ourselves without depending on anybody else. Think about it. Think about it. Who do you need? In fact, if you really want a vacation, just get rid of people. You know? That's, that's our psyche. It is countercultural to the whole concept of getting together to pray together, to spend time together. That's almost risky for us. Oh, the Middle Easterner, yeah, they love it. Latin Americans, yeah, they go for it. You know, big family people. In some other parts of the world, yeah, this is normal, but not for us. And you get some Latin Americans by the third generation, they're just as individualistic as, they have, as, as, as the, the, the most Norwegian in Minnesota is. It's just the culture in which we live. And it's countercultural to us. But if we could learn, if there's something that I long for our churches to learn is this. If we could learn this, if we could accept that one, one thing and actually make it a point to get together and to pray until kingdom come together. God who knows our weaknesses, who knows that we're but dust, Psalm 103, who knows that we cannot do this forever and ad infinitum, he would answer, he would intercede, he would show up, if you will, a lot more than I believe is happening. Simply because we're being obedient to this. Simply because by doing this together, a lot of things happen. In the, a lot of things that God has in mind actually take place. Why do revivals, think about this for a moment, why do revivals, why do, does every revival in the Christian church of any significance, in the last 250 years, has been started by young people. For the same reason that every revolution, politically speaking, starts with young people. Why? When you get to be my age, you don't need other people. Yes, of course you do. But you have learned to live to protect yourself, including your reputation and blah, 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 blah. But when you're 20, or when you're 25, or when you're 15, what really matters to you is your friends. So you don't strike out on your own. You basically, you strike out with your friends. Let's change the world. And you do that together. And God says, God smiles and says, bingo, I got my foundation. And when that happens, the 50-year-olds look at that, those who have wisdom and have walked with God, 
and said, I can recognize God being that, there, and they, they support it or they guide it. But they're never the catalysts. Never. They never start it. It's always the 20-year-olds who do. Because they do things together. 20-year-olds still have friends. <laughs> yeah. You wait till your 30s and then your friends start getting smaller. And then you get family and friends, you know, and then you, you know, and, they, and then when your kids are in their teens and stuff, you are pretty lonely. Because your kids have, you know, they're, they're with their friends. It's like, mom and dad, you know, who are you? So, they still have friends. That's why. Now, God was wise. You know, sometimes we see pictures of the disciples. We think that these people were my age. Are you kidding me? Disciples were never in their 50s. Hardly anybody was alive in their 50s in those days anyway. That was ancient. You know, a few people lasted to be in their 70s or 80s, but they were real rarities because the death, you know, the life expectancy was pretty short. They were all in their 20s. Maybe, maybe their 30s. You know, we find Peter bald, you know, gray hair. Are you kidding me? No. Peter was probably 32 or something. Because he, he was in charge of a fishing fleet. That, you know, that was big old experience. It wasn't just uh, John that was 18. A whole bunch of them. They were young. They were 22. They were 23. They were disciples of a master. Jesus was 30 and he, was a, he had to be among the oldest. We need to rescue this again in our churches, with our friends. And, and uh, you know, people my age pray that young people get going. Pray to infect young people with that because it's not going to happen with us. It naturally will not happen with us. Here's a story. Um... Roseville, north of uh, Sacramento, typical Laodicean American church. Okay, uh, what do I mean by that? You know, people go to church, they do their thing, a small group of people, most people are doing their other thing away from church. 200 members, 100 in attendance on good Sabbaths, mostly older. You know, today, you do well by getting 50% of your church membership to attend church. The churches that do 50% or better are really something else. A lot of Adventist churches today get only 30%, 25% of their members to come to church on a regular basis. It's pathetic, really. It's quite pathetic. Um, well, anyway, I didn't know any better, so I focused on three things. Focused on Bible study, prayer, and witness. I said, I know these things. I know this is important. I know this matters to God. I know this is priority. I know this is fundamental. I am going to do that because I certainly don't know how to pastor this church. It was the kind of a church that people, I did a survey in the community among Adventists. The, the survey basically said, nice church to visit. I wouldn't want to be a member there. Now, what does that mean? It's, uh, it, it had a fairly new sanctuary. It's a nice, nice place, good access. But people... You know how it is? People feel that they're the friendliest church. Why? Because they're friendly to each other. 
But they're not necessarily friendly to people who have never, they've never seen. Although they think that they're friendly. So that was a little bit the case here. So biblical preaching was a spark to start things. You know, when, when you really get into the Word of God and you try to really unearth what some of the things that God says, it does something because the Bible actually has the power to transform people. You know, and in my evangelistic preaching class, I tell students, stick to the Bible, really to the Bible. Go, go at some depth and breadth in the Bible. You'll see amazing things. People actually convert. What a concept. You know, because the Bible has that power, right? So there was a need for prayer. So we began praying with the elders at 5 o'clock in the morning. Now this is a white suburban California church. Three strikes against you right there. Okay? 5 o'clock. But uh, the, mem- the, the elders came from 5 to 7. I, was, I told them, I'll be there from 5 to 7. After a few weeks, we added... Friday. After a few more weeks, we added Sabbath and Sunday. So we had four mornings at five o'clock every week. And then after a couple of months, we added the other three days of the week. We started including, uh, you know, because uh, deacons says, hey, can we go? We're hearing about how good an experience these guys are having. We want to be a part of that. And I said, sure. And so we opened it up and more people came and other people came. And, and then we started with fasting and prayer weekends People united, God answered, the church found new sets of opportunities, spiritual growth, evangelistic focus. All kinds of things started happening. This is in a regular Laodicean church. Why? Because people started getting together to pray and took it seriously. We didn't know any better. You know, a lot of these, you know what happened? A lot of these elders, I started teaching of what the Bible said about elders. And elders basically do two things. They, they rule, they, they make decisions for the, on behalf of the body, and they teach the Bible. Those are the two things the elders do. The rest of the description of what the elders are, are, are the character, the kind of people they need to be. And we had a bunch of elders who didn't know much about the Bible, you know, how it happens in some of the churches, you know, they're... They're running a business or they're professional people, but they don't know much about the Bible. They would never be able to teach a Sabbath school lesson very well. I don't, you know, they have their ideas, but they don't really teach the Bible. So the nominating committee caught on to that and didn't re-elect a number of the lifelong elders. Of course, a couple of them knocked on my door and said, Hey, what's wrong? You know, how come, you know, what are you messing with me about this? And I say, Hey, nominating committee. Um, and you know, instead, you know who they, they elected? They elected elders in their 30s. People who actually loved studying the Bible. People who actually had a burden to share with other people. Boy, that really... And that's why those guys came at 5 o'clock in the morning. They came at 5 o'clock in the morning. They said, this is of God. And I said 5 simply because I said, any other time is going to be a problem. Of course, this is a problem too. But the only problem that is uniformly a problem for everybody is sleep, basically. Any other time during the day, there are work problems or other, other responsibilities. And I said, come when you can. Come as long as you, you know, five, five minutes or ten minutes, come. I'll be there. Well, they responded. And God started creating something. 
with that group of people. And there was a, a yearning desire to be, to do things for God. To do things for God. To really do things for God. Of course, I was in my 30s. They were in their 30s. Some of them were in their late 20s. Look at the prayer. This is just to give you an example. Now, we're talking about a church 20, well, yeah, 20 plus years ago now. Uh, started in 88. This is what they had to begin with, the prayer chain. But then we started prayer committees. Then, then in worship, we started really focusing on prayer more and more. The prayer vigil before the crusade, the sermon series on prayer that really, really transformed the church. Two months we stayed on, on talking about it. It transformed me. Dwight Nelson, a good friend of mine, you know who Dwight Nelson is, he has said it, and he's absolutely right. He says, we preachers preach what we need to hear. And that's really what happens. If, if, something really is, it's, it, if, if something is important there, you want to know about it, therefore you end up preaching about it, because you're spending time with it, right? So, then we follow with our power. I don't have time to explain all of it. Then small groups start in prayer, and then the first fasting and prayer. The first fasting and prayer was revolutionary to us. We don't do that very much, right? It was revolutionary. We, spent, we went through the night on Friday night, and then we recognized that was a mistake. Because by 5 o'clock, everybody was out of it. You know, 5 o'clock in the morning. It's like... So, we decided on the second one to stop at 10 o'clock at night and, and resume at 6.30 in the morning or 6 in the morning. And it worked, well, worked a lot better. You know the people that were most transformed? Young adults. They had never spent that much time with God ever in their lives before. And when, when, when they spent two or three complete days with God together, fasting allows your thinking to work a little bit better and you're focusing on, 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 on God and on His Word and praying. You know, we have prayer sessions. Every, we had 90-minute sessions and 20 out of those 90 minutes were dedicated to praying together. We had up to 800 people participating in one of these things. I mean, it, it really was something. Then for the church plant and sermons on the Holy Spirit, all of this you can go through. I just kept track of what God was doing through in the, in the ministry of prayer. All through that. Listen to what Ellen White says about this is This is something else. Shall not our half-hearted supplications be turned into petitions of intense desire for this great blessing? We do not ask for enough of the good things God has promised. If we would reach higher, reach up higher and expect more, our petitions will reveal the quickening influence that comes to every soul who asks with a full expectation of being heard and answered. The Lord is not glorified by the tame supplications which show that nothing is expected. See Gahun say the early story? That guy, he believed, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going I'm to stay here until something happens. Corey Ten Boone, I'm going I'm to press that before you until you make something happen. You make that promise here, I'm going to hold you to it. 
Ellen White continues to say, The Lord is not glorified by the tame supplications which show that nothing is expected. He desires everyone who believes to approach the throne of grace with earnestness and assurance. Do we realize the magnitude of the work in which we're engaged? We're here as instruments to save the world. Do we realize that? If we did, there would be more fervency in our prayers. We would plead for power as a hungry child. If we realized the greatness of the gift, if we desired the attainment of the blessing, our petitions would ascend with earnestness, importunity, urgency. It would be as if we were at the gate of heaven soliciting entrance. We should ask with an earnestness that will not be denied. I like that. He is the light and life of all who seek Him. The measure which we receive of the holy influence of His Spirit is proportionate to the measure of our desire to receive. Of our faith to grasp and of our capacity to enjoy the great goodness of the blessing and to impart it to others. The Bible echo August 5, 1901. You know that church, that Laodicean, white, suburban church in California changed. We all changed. We still, we still talk about this. Every once in a while I meet with some of my friends the, those days. We still say what God did in those days in our midst. That was an amazing thing. You know what happened? The attendance went from 100 to about four or 500. We had two services, full chairs sometimes. We planted a new church. That church is still thriving today, 20 plus years later. In a difficult area. You know what area it is? Is where Amazing Facts has their headquarters today. In Rockland, which was a high bedroom community, at least at that time. Um, evangelism thrived. We knocked on doors. We went out, uh, you know, visiting with people. We, we had campaigns every single year. We had 40 or 50 Bible studies going on every single week. I would take Bible studies. I would take Bible study requests. People would come. And I didn't have time to assign them. So I would t stand up with a Bible study request card in the church on Sabbath morning and say, who's going to take this? We're not going to continue today until we, somebody picks that up. And that's good. You know, it worked. It's very efficient. And, and so people started really engaging. Uh, we went from... Uh, I can't remember what the low percentage was, but about three-fourths of the church members became engaged with some kind of ministry. That's a remarkable statistic. Seventy-six percent of all the church members, the people in the books, not the people that are attending church, were engaged in ministry. Not just attending church, they were involved in some kind of ministry. Well, that's why that church changed. And so the membership went from 200 to over 600, plus the 100 and something for the church, for the church plant. The giving went from 150,000 to over 600,000. We were able to support six church, six, ten pastors at that time. 
um, we didn't have ten pastors, but we, we supported ten pastors. Uh, our, our church expense went from measly 32000 I'm talking about years ago, 32000 to two, to a quarter of a million dollars. Our, our evangelism increased over 5,000%. We gave 17% of our budget to evangelism. 17% of our budget, that's unheard of. Most churches will give 2 to 3% of their budget, 1 to 3% of their budget to evangelism. We gave 17% of our budget. We baptized 200 people in five years without a church. I mean, without a school. That is, without the feeding of a biological growth. It was all real converts out there. Why? Because the Spirit of God... And I think that, you know, looking back, I think we could have done a lot more, to be honest with you. But that's as far as God could go with what we gave Him. But we gave Him a lot more than what we did give Him before. And that's why God was able to work so clearly in that group of people. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is the same as the Holy Spirit working in Africa today. The same as the Holy Spirit working in the Philippines today. The same Holy Spirit working in Brazil today is the same Holy Spirit that we're going to work in our churches, in our families, in our midst today. It is no different. It is dependent on our willingness to receive Him. Well, how are we with time? Am I out of time? So I have a few more minutes. I want to talk a little bit about trans, uh, hindrances, but let's do this. Let's take... Um, I'll go through this very quickly, but let's do this. Um, let's stand up for a moment. It gives you a chance to, if you want to check out the bathroom, you can do that without everybody checking on you. And uh, come, if you have any questions, come, come to the microphone and ask the questions. Let's deal with the questions while you are stretching. All right, anybody has questions? Here's the opportunity to, to ask. You've talked a lot about um, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, uh, but we he we've been hearing also about uh, the latter rain. Uh, and one of the um, one of the, in your list, one of the things was uh, the collective, the the church coming together. Um, are those? What is the difference between the latter rain and that maybe that personal experience and how you tidying all the um, the the United Church? Important question. Um, I have a chapter on the latter rain there. The, the latter rain, people get confused by terminology many times. It gets more complicated than it needs to be. The latter rain is simply the corporate expression of the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. Okay? What that means is the more... And the latter rain is latter because the former is former. In the former rain, Ellen White explains it very clearly to say that it, that, that is our, our initial, our, our engagement, our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, our acceptance of His life in our lives, etc. That will be ripened, that experience will be ripened in the latter day experience. But that's... That's something that has been going on, it's maturing as it goes. So 
people who have not received the former rain will not receive the latter rain. In fact, she says that it will be falling around all and around you and they will not even perceive it. Because people who are not walking with the Lord, they will not even understand what's going on. So, this is all one and the same thing. It's our, our, the more we yield to the fullness of the work of God in our lives, the more latter rainy we become. Until, I, in my way of thinking, until there's a critical mass, when it becomes very clear that to everybody that God is really doing something. It was clear in that experience that I shared with you a few minutes ago in that church. Um, and it will be clear at a much global uh, way when the Lord, uh, when that, when, when more of us, I believe, uh, that are, that are members of the church that follow the Lord Jesus will yield all to Him. Other questions? Thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. Just come to the mic. Don't, you don't need to raise your hand. Just come to the mic and, and, then, uh, and then ask the question. Um, I'm trying to understand what you said about um, having to receive the Spirit by faith. Because um, you also mentioned that we should pray for the Holy Spirit until we see results. And um, I'm tied to that. I'm not quite sure what Ellen White means when she was talking about um, faith versus feeling. And she, she kind of um, compares um, accepting things by faith with receiving much of the Holy Spirit. Excellent question. Thank you. Somebody's thinking. Uh, the, the, it, it would seem to be contradictory. If we're to receive the Spirit by faith, why should we pray for it? Why should we plead for that? And yet you see strong statements about pleading. We read some of them. On the other hand, it is clear that we need to receive by faith. What happens is this. The, reception, the, the faith needs to be activated when we don't feel the Spirit of God is clearly at work in our lives. Or when we don't feel a certain manifestation of the Spirit. The tendency, the human tendency is to want to see some manifestation. You know, like, you know, is God using me to heal 300 people? You know, that kind of thing. Or, or, or some kind of a manifestation where I see that God is clearly doing something that I, I, I don't recognize. That's actually a human tendency. That's why you have a third of Christianity who are Charismatics or Pentecostals. Because they want to hold on to that sensory experience that tells them, that gives them a sense of, okay, now I know God is with me. It is at those moments that faith needs to be practiced. By simply believing in taking the hold of what God says in His Word, not waiting to feel certain things, to know that we are, that we are moving ahead with what God says, but to say, God, you said, I'm, I'm filled with the Spirit of God, I have accepted that, I will accept it by faith, and I'm not going to... I'm not going to despair because I don't see the evidence. Now, that doesn't mean that we should then relax and not pray. No, the reason we're praying is because we want to see God at work in ways that we have not seen God at work. So we keep moving. It's hard to explain. We keep moving forward, pleading before God, and yet at the same time, at every step of the game, we keep uh, holding on to the fact that God is with us and that God will follow through His promises and that God will, will do what He said He would do and that we are going to be willing to, to accept that. 
All right, you can take a seat again. Thank you. Um, let's uh, let's quickly go through four hindrances, and I am just going to read the last one. I'm going to spend a little more time with, uh, but the first three will be fairly quick, and I will just uh, refer to the spirit of prophecy on that. Number one, secondary concerns. Secondary concerns are a hindrance to the reception of the Holy Spirit. Here's what she says. Let Christians put away all dissension and give themselves to God for the saving of the lost. Let them ask in faith for the promised blessing. That's the outpouring of the Spirit. And it will come. But the promise of the Spirit is a matter little thought of and the result is only what might be expected. Spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declension and death. Minor matters occupy the attention. And the divine power, which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church, and which would bring all other blessings in its train, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit in Desire of Ages 671. She talks about how when we have the Holy Spirit, all other blessings come in its train. Everything else. When we have the Holy Spirit, everything else comes with it. When that happens, then... When that is lacking, though offered in infinite, it's an infinite plenitude. Minor matters are a problem. Testimonies, volume 8, verse 21. This is, I think, what one that I wanted to read. Let me just, because this says it better than what I can say it. Listen to this. Minor matters occupy the attention. In an age designed for effectiveness, we spend more time than ever on secondary things. I'm reading from the book in 156. Whether in surfing the internet or checking up on our social networks or texting on the phone, technology has become one of our greatest demons to tame. Fewer people read, and many of the ones who still do, don't do it to learn anything but to be entertained. Most, however, watch something either on TV, on their laptops, or even on their iPods. We do these things because we can, not because we must. Endless distraction is the newest, most powerful, effective weapon for today's generation. And because we major in minors, we never graduate to new levels of spiritual growth. The admonition does not apply only to technology and entertainment, it applies to life values and priorities. What do we talk about with friends? Where does, where does our mind go when in neutral? What do we find ourselves doing with our discretionary time? Many Christians, if they were to do an objective analysis of their use of time, would find that it translates into living very inconsequential lives, if not lives which should cause them concern. Much potential across the age spectrum is misused, if not wasted today. Satan is succeeding in making a mockery of the human race, including Christians, by leading them to set their sights so low they don't know if the bar exists anymore, much less how high it is. I speak to myself first in this respect. I have wasted years of my life doing stuff that didn't need to be done or worse, that shouldn't have been engaged in to begin with. If you're young, don't let that happen to you. God forgives, but the time gone cannot be redeemed. 
minor matters are a problem. They're a minor thing, but there's a big problem when it comes to the exercise of the work of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We get we get into secondary things, and God no longer is in control. We just get distracted with all of this piddly stuff about life. A second thing: pride and self-reliance. Pride and self-reliance. Here's what Ellen White says: The people of God have accustomed themselves to think that they must rely upon their own efforts; that little help is to be received from heaven. And the result is that they have little light to communicate to other souls who are dying in error and darkness. The church has long been contented with little of the blessing of God. And they are disqualified for the work the Lord would have them to do. They are not able to present the great and glorious truths of God's holy word that would convict and convert souls through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The power of God awaits their demand and reception, a harvest of joy will be reaped by those who sow the holy seeds of truth. When we think we got things under control, when we're not in total, when we don't live on a daily basis in total dependence upon God, that is pride and self-reliance. So you know what? The older you get, the more this is a problem for you. You know why? Because the older we get, the more, the better we get at what we do. You know, that's no genius. It doesn't take a genius to know that. You are a professional. If you've been doing something enough times, you become a professional at it, eventually. And so, you, you know how to do it. That's why it is harder for older people to change, because it took them long years to get to figure things out this way now. Now you're going to mess with them? It's going to happen to you too, young people. It's going to happen. It's, it's a life cycle. But that's why people who are older have a harder time with pride and self-reliance because they, they, have already, they have already eliminated a lot of things that don't work. They have figured out what works and now they want to hold on to that. And in that process, they don't have a lot of room for God sometimes because it's like, hey, I figured this out. Don't mess with me now. And she says, that's a problem. The Holy Spirit can't work through you anymore. Ellen White had some choice words sometimes for leaders who would not change. Leaders who would stay in committees for a long time or in positions for a long time, not, laying, not allowing younger people to take over. And this is the problem. A third one, retaliation in a critical spirit. I talked about briefly this morning and mentioned that this morning. Uh, a couple of statements. Councils on Stewardship 115. An indwelling Savior is revealed by the words. But the Holy Spirit does not abide in the heart of him who is peevish if others do not agree with his ideas and plans. Woo. Now that happens a lot in churches. It happens a lot in, sometimes in committees. From the lips of such a man there come scathing remarks which grieve the Spirit away and develop attributes that are satanic rather than divine. That happens a lot in families. So... If my idea, if my opinion is run to the ground, and my reaction is, I want to cut your throat as a result of it, then obviously the Spirit of God is not very much at work in your life there. And that is an evidence of it. Well, sometimes we have a lot of very earnest people in the church, in our family members, sometimes it's ourselves, 
who for very righteous reasons we want to defend certain things, but all we're doing is being, is being examples to this statement. What that is, is an evidence that the Spirit of God is not really working. It is we're postponing the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives by holding on to our rights. Here's the second statement, Christ's Object Lessons 171 and 2. When trials arise that seem unexplainable, we should not allow our peace to be spoiled. However unjustly we may be treated, let not passion arise. Whoa, that's, that's strong. That's extremely wise, but very strong. I mean, it's, you can see it's tough. By indulging a spirit of retaliation, we injured ourselves. We destroy our own confidence in God and grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, some people retaliate by not saying anything. It, it, it depends on our temperament. Some people will get back at you by, by giving you this silent treatment. That's how they get back at you. Or some people get back at you by doing other things. But it's still retaliation. It's still, it's still this thing, this self-thing, that finds some dissatisfaction in getting back at them in some way. That says that is a hindrance to the Holy Spirit in your life. And the last one, intense amusements. Now I want to spend a little time with this one. Intense amusements. This is CT is counsel to parents, teachers, and students. 281. This is a this is a very significant statement. There are a number of statements close to this. But let this one be edged in our mind. Many have turned away from God's plan to follow human inventions to the detriment of spiritual life. Amusements are doing more to counteract the working of the Holy Spirit than anything else. And the Lord is grieved. Amusements to counteract the work of the Holy Spirit. Now what amusements would she have been thinking about? Well, let me tell you some. The amusement she was probably thinking about was theater, playing cards, playing chess. Now that seems pretty mild compared to the amusements we can engage in today, right? What amusements can we engage in today in the comfort of our bed, our study, our car? We all have a computer today. Who can live without it, right? Video games. I mean, video games in your phone, by goodness sake. Do you have this for, you know, I mean, I've seen people hours and hours every day just playing video games in their, you know, games in their phone. That's all they live, you know, they live for the, vid, for the game. Huh? Amusement. Uh, movies. I mean, who needs to go to the theater anymore to see movies? You can bring them all home at the click. Uh... You know, internet, surfing the internet. Pornography. Pornography is a huge problem for Christians. For more and more research is coming out that Christians are having as much or more problem with pornography than non-Christians. In that among the leading problems are ministers. It's all there. 
human inventions to the detriment of spiritual life. Television used to be the big thing when I was a kid. Oh, you got a lot more advanced stuff than television today. Television is boring now compared to this stuff that you can get access to. Amusements. Uh, listen to John Piper. He wrote a, an interesting book called Hunger for God. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. God is, uh, it is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. He's talking about television. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Something quite common. The greatest adversary to love of God, of love to God, is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Now the problem is not internet itself. The problem is not television itself. But the problem is that 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 makes it very easy, very accessible for you to waste a lot of time and to do a lot of things that are not God-leading, that do not lead you to God that are detriment, as she says, detriment to spiritual life. If I spend a lot of time on that nonsense, do I feel like praying or talking with God or studying the Bible after that? No. I have to detox myself for a few hours after that. I haven't had a television for many years now, and that there's a story behind that, but I'm, I'm a recovering TV-holic, and I travel a bit, and whenever I travel, I go to these fine motels and hotels with flat screens that are, you know, you can watch all night stuff. You know, there's 400 channels. Um, and I have to guard myself about that. The issue is that leads you to more of the world, not more of God. And that's the issue. Because what would you do? Ask yourself this question. What will I do in heaven if I don't have my laptop? You know, if you, if you have a hard time with answering that, then you've got a problem. You know, what will I do in heaven if I can't have access to Netflix or, 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 or you know, movies? It's much better to detox here than there. <laughs> Not going to make it there, yeah. The average American discretionary time over 75 years this is an older study, but it's, it's still relevant. 24 years. Out of 75 years, every American will sleep 24 years. Average. Four years of standing or waiting in line. Four years of eating. I think some people are probably a little more than that. Half a year in the bathroom. I'm sure some people are more than that. On that. Half a year of physical activity. Now, that's interesting, huh? Half a year in the bathroom, but half a year, only half a year of physical activity. You know, so, you know, as much physical activity as you spend in the bathroom. What I didn't say is that 13 years of a, a typical American average life, 13 years out of 30, 75, has spent watching TV. 13 years. That's the second thing after you sleep. Discretionary time. That's not the time you use for your work. 13 years. 
Roland Hextad, a number of years ago, wrote this in the Mind Manipulators, an interesting little piece. He says, the significant fact we should note here is that events of which have no conscious recall are nevertheless printed as as if on a cinema film within our mind. Every television program, every billboard message, every advertisement, every person scrutinized, every suspicion harbored, every word spoken, it's all there. That scientifically is the fact. I remember reading a number of years ago how they put a woman on electrodes, whatever it is, and she was able to recall an entire orchestra piece. She was able to reproduce an entire orchestra piece even though she had heard it one time 17 years before. That means everything that we've ever been exposed to by our senses is there. The fact that you can't recall it at will doesn't mean that it's not there. But the fact that it is there, it means it affects you in some way. So that's why exposure is so important. I tell my students, I tell my kids, we need to be exposed to God. We need to expect, the more we're exposed to God, exposed to the Bible, exposed to to good things, Philippians 4, 8, you know, the, the good things, then it has an impact in our minds. The more we're exposed to worldly things, that also has an impact in our lives. William James, with the father of American psychology, he wrote, the, drum, the drunken Rip Van Winkle in Jefferson's play excuses himself for every fresh dereliction, dereliction by saying, I won't count it this time. The guy would get drunk all the time. I won't count it this time. Well, he may not count it, and kind heaven may not count it, but it is being counted nonetheless. Nothing we ever do is in strict scientific literalness wiped out. It is all there. There's a statement, I don't have it with me, and, I, and don't press me as to where it is, but I've read it and I've heard it. Ellen White says that some people in heaven will enjoy God more than other people. Their capacity to enjoy God is greater than other people. Why? Because of this. So, um, everything has its consequence. C.S. Lewis, I'm closing now. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. He's, you know, letters to, um, well, I'll see it at the end. Murder is no better than cards, playing cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's exactly how the devil works. The devil doesn't show up to you and say, be the most evil person you can. Here's the the temptation. You'll say, hey, forget it. The devil comes sneaking in. Slithering in, little by little, moment by moment, just one little thing at a time, to edge you away from God into into the world. I come back to the prayer time, and I'll close with this story again, a personal story, but to 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 illustrate a couple things. Um, and some of you heard me tell this story. Years ago, I used to, when I was a pastor particularly, and later for several years, I used to take personal retreats. My wife would allow me to do that, take off for two or three days by myself, go into the mountains or by a lake or out in the desert 
and take very little food, take my Bible, some music, and basically I would, I would plan it so I would not see people and I would just meet with God all that time. I would fast most of that time and, uh, and just connect with God in a way that I could not otherwise. It was incredibly refreshing to me. Many times those days were responsible for, you know, an entire year was lined up in my mind as to what needs to happen, what God wanted to do in our church or what I needed to do with this or that, whatever. Anyway, it was in one of those uh, retreats in the mountains in uh, Northern California by Lake Tahoe, but it was in the dead of winter. There were 16-foot snow drifts there. And I couldn't enter into the cabin. A, a church member had loaned to me, you know, had allowed me to go. I couldn't get into it because the door was completely covered with snow. So I had to get into it through a window in the second floor. It was surrounded with snow. I spent a couple of days there studying and reading and singing to God. That was a good thing. You know, you can sing out. Nobody, you know, not even the dogs can hear you. And just sing out to God. But after a couple of days, I thought, well, we'd be good to take a shower. Yeah. Uh, be good to take a shower. But I had a little phlegm here in my, in my lungs. And I remember a friend of mine said, you know, the best way to get rid of that is hot and cold. Hot and cold. Yeah, okay. All right, so I took a shower. I was taking a shower, singing to God. I was just, it was so good to be with God. So good to be with God. And I was singing singing praises to him. I, you know, I take short showers. My thing is short showers. I, I live with members of my family that take very long showers, um, but I'm in and out. But in this case, you know, I didn't have anybody, you know, we could use the entire, you know, heater there for me if I wanted to. So I just stay there 20 minutes. And it was hot water. It was wonderful. You know, looked at the little window out there full of snow. I would touch it and say, man, that's cold. You know. And then I remember, oh, okay, the cold water. I need to do the cold water. But I knew it was too chicken to do the cold water slowly. So I said, you know, cold turkey, that's the best way to go. Just suffer a little bit and put up with it. So, you know, my, my shoulders are red, hot. And so I said, okay, it's time for the cold water. What did I know? So I turned that thing all the way, all the way to the other side. And it took about 10 seconds. And all of a sudden, these sheets of ice came on my very hot skin and I stopped singing <laughs> and I lost my breath I couldn't breathe anymore you know it's like some, when somebody punches you right here and it's like <clears throat> that's what it was and just at that moment because you have to understand this is a very personal thing but I have been living with God for two days. It's like he and I were here together. Clears a bell in my mind. The thought came to me. When you want me as much as you want your next breath, you can have me. And it was very instructive to me. 
to recognize I want God in my life. But I, I, may, I may not want to sacrifice a lot. It may not be as bad as my next breath. But when you are gasping for your next breath, nothing at that moment is as important, is it? You don't think about, you know, I have a test next Tuesday. You know, you, you don't think, you know, I've got to answer that, that email. You know, you're saying, <coughs> where's the air? That was memorable to me because God said, are you serious about this? Because if you're serious about this, I'm serious about it. This is what Alan White says. This is what God says through His servant. Plead for the Holy Spirit. God stands back of every promise He has made. With your Bible in your hands, say, I present thy promise. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. When with earnestness and intensity we breathe a prayer in the name of Christ, there is in that very intensity a pledge from God that He is about to answer our prayer exceedingly above all that we ask or think. So when, that's one of the reasons why we need to keep praying. We need to keep praying because sometimes we keep praying until we say, God, we've been praying this for a long time. And that's when you finally get intense about this. And you finally say, what gives? What happens? What's going to happen? What needs to take place? And you get really, you, you press it. And she says, that is God's pledge. When you come to that point, that's a God's pledge of saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm about to answer that. Because you really want this. You really take, you really, you, you're serious about this business. It is not God's reluctance. It is our inability or unwillingness to let Him have His entire way with us. That's really the issue. So, let's not give up. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's keep, let's keep thinking about what's important to Him. Because what's important to Him is what's important to us. And in the process, let, don't let Him go. That's what Jacob did. Don't let Him go. There will be a day, there will be a moment when you're going to say to Him, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. I am done. You can put me in the ground. If you're not going to do this in my life, I'm not interested in living another five minutes. Or you might pray this way. Do whatever is necessary for this to take place in my life. That's a dangerous prayer. Because whatever is necessary may involve cancer, the loss of a loved one, maim, loss of job, loss of reputation, a, a whole bunch of things. But when you're ready to say that, it's because you really mean business. And you say, God, um, this, this, is, this is really important to me. Now, don't worry if you're not there. It's not, it's not an issue of more spiritual or less spiritual. It's an issue of where we are in our walk with God. My prayer often is, Lord, cause within me a yearning for you. Because I recognize that my yearning 
for him is not as great as it could be, cause within me a yearning for you, a desire to have you more than anything else in this world. And the Lord listens to those prayers as well. So will you ask? Will you ask? Um, tomorrow, if you're interested, we will talk about power for last spirit power for last day events. So we'll talk about what's happening now in last day's events, how how the Holy Spirit is moving, how the false Holy Spirit is how the false spirit is moving, how to know the difference, what are going to be the key issues there, and how God is going to God is going to use you know examples of God's power through His people that will really change the world and usher this uh, latter rain uh, promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand up as we pray. Father in heaven, again we. We ran out of time to have more, to have time to meditate on these things, to pray about it ourselves. Or perhaps we can do that in our walks with our friends as we reflect tonight, later on as we wake up early in the morning. Oh Lord Jesus, all of us here in this room have a, a, a genuine desire for you to work in our lives in extraordinary ways for, your, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your honor. We want to see you at work. We want to exalt you. We want for people to be able to turn our way in order to see you, Lord. We want to see the work of God, the power of God, the love of God at work in our lives, the lives of our churches, our ministries, our friends, our families. We desire for Jesus to have all of us there is. We surrender to you this afternoon. We surrender. We thank you for the hope and the promise for what you plan to do, what you do with those who take you seriously. And we pray that we may be accounted among that number for your honor, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everyone. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, 
a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.